0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. Well, It's good to be back with you guys. I was on vacation uh, this week, had a great time in New Hampshire, Uh, a little warm in our tent, but we survived, and always good to be back home here. You know, as I think through uh, teaching and writing sermons uh, each week, I'm always thinking through, you know, various, uh, basically a certain grid, various values for me. I know your your trust and your time is valuable. It's really paramount. Um I know that Christianity uh, can be looked at negatively. I know sometimes preachers and teachers uh, can be looked at with mistrust and and things like that. And so the weight of it all, honestly, is really, it's very real every time you step on this stage. Um, And so I take that seriously. And so every time I step up here, literally, I'm aware of this. I'm hyper aware of it, actually, as I should be. And I also know every speaker, no matter whether you're a pastor or not, needs to know the audience that they're speaking to. And so, again, that's, that's something I'm thinking about, like who's in the room, who's going to be watching online, all of that kind of stuff factors in. Because if you don't, you're, you're likely not to engage, you're likely kind of to miss uh, the mark there. Uh, so I'm always thinking about that as well. I know that there are people in this room who have been going to church their whole life. People who have been following Jesus for a really long time. You know the Bible really well. At the same time, I know there are people that are listening to me right now who really aren't sure. They're skeptical. They have not made a decision to trust or follow Jesus. They're still the kind of the juries out on, on that. And I totally get that. I understand it. And honestly, walking into a church may be one of the scariest things you can do. At least I would feel that way if I walked into a church. So again, I'm very aware of that. There are some here who are Christians. There are some here who are anti-Christian. And so when I'm thinking through this grid of the audience and... Being relevant in our culture and our needs and grace and even your pain tolerance, quite frankly. Um, I try then to begin to craft something that hopefully does a few things. Hopefully, encourages you. Hopefully, it inspires you. Hopefully, it challenges you. There's a word I use, I've been using it a, a lot this year admonishing you. So, you know, gently nudge us towards something different, right? So you may have a preconceived idea about church, about pastors, about speakers, all of that kind of thing. And also, one last thing, when you prepare something, sometimes it just comes to you, just like that, and you know exactly what you're going to say. And other times, it takes a lot of hard work. So for like a 30-minute message, and I promise that will be around 30 minutes, okay, so don't freak out, hopefully. Sometimes it takes like 30 hours to prepare, and this was one of those messages for me, right? But I feel compelled to speak it for a couple reasons. Number one, I feel like God wants me to speak this message. I don't know why, so I've got to do it for that reason alone, um, and because we're in a series called Basic, and we've been in this series a while, I think there's a basic need for uh, some understanding here. However, I'm hyper-aware of how it may be perceived, um, because it might be perceived as many people uh, think of church. And so this was the first picture that came to my mind. Bob is going to put it up there for you. The pastor who's up here is going to point his finger and get really loud, and drool all over the place, or sweat. Or it might be this next picture. This is a real drawing of a journalist who was listening to a preacher in 1907. And she was writing an article, and this is what she said. Her name is Lindsay Dennison, and she complained that this preacher preached the old, old doctrine of damnation. And so this is her exact words. In spite of his conviction that the truly religious man should take his religion joyfully, he gets his results by inspiring fear and gloom in the hearts of sinners. The fear of death with torment beyond it, intensified by examples of the frightful deathbeds of those who have carelessly and obdurately put off salvation until it is too late. It is with this mighty menace that he drives sinners into the fold awkward silence. So if I haven't scared you already, I want to tell you what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about sin. I promise you, though, I will not invoke fear and doom. I also promise you I will not stand on this table I don't know if I could do it anyway. I'm not sure. But like I said, in every time I am up here, I am hopeful that by the end of today's service, that you will be not only challenged, but also possibly even inspired. And we've given more thought to this topic, which is honestly very rarely talked about. So, let me just jump right in. We don't use the word sin too much. I'm, a, I'm actually not sure. Outside of, like, Christian people in the church, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody, like, in real life, use the word sin. I, I don't. Well, well, actually, that's not true. That's not true. I think when we think of sin, we think of this. Um, we've got <laughs> fabulous Las Vegas, also known as Sin City. Now, I got that name a while back, maybe for good reason. It is also kind of fun. But we use it in that sense. There's some shady stuff that goes on there. Uh, There's another way uh, we use um, uh, the word sin. We look at that chocolate gooey ooze, and it's sinfully delicious. Right? That dessert is just sinful. So, those are a couple ways maybe we use the word sin. I couldn't think of any more. Maybe you can. But instead, though, we use words like evil, darkness, maybe an evil force, wrong, uh, injustice, bad, mistakes screw ups. I don't know. But that's kind of the words we typically use when we are trying to get our heads or we're trying to describe kind of, you know, the thing that we're talking about. But let's just get past all this because we know the point. We all get the point. Whatever word we use, badness is everywhere, isn't it? Evil is really everywhere. We don't have to think too much in order to get the point that we talk about when we talk about all these words. We, we could just start with corrupt politicians or maybe corrupt pastors or child traffickers or racists and bigots, murderers, those who are raging. But we live in a world Full of badness. We live in a world full of sin. And today I want us to all get a basic understanding of it. And the way I've tried to kind of lay this out, I want to think about our world collectively, all of us together. Then I want to think about what's going on personally within all of us. And then I want to talk about the remedy. The remedy. So, what is sin? Let me first drop some knowledge on you. There is actually a word that is the study of sin. It's called hamartiology. That is the study of the doctrine of sin, hamartiology. And you say, well, what might give it that word? Well, I'll tell you in a second. Get there in a minute. When we study the Bible, when we look at the Bible, of course, the Bible is broken up into two sections. It's a whole bunch of books that have been assembled, um, and it's in two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Maybe you've heard of that. And so when we look at all of the words used for badness or for sin in the Bible, there's about 20 different words used. There's 20 different words because all of it has like these different shades of meaning. Here are some of them to miss, to ruin, to rebel, to defy, to cast guilt, to go astray, wickedness, bad, disease, moral evil, without God, to cast guilt, to be lawless, to worship ignorantly, to deceive, to fall away, and to pretend. And there are probably more there. But as you can see, all of those different phrases kind of capture these kind of different angles about what sin is or what that might mean in the Bible. So you can see how broadly we might be looking at something, right? In fact, it's used... Hundreds and hundreds of times these words, I think just one of them I I read, and I couldn't confirm this. I had a hard time confirming exactly. I think part of it depends on translation and things like that. But certainly we're approaching 500 times in the Bible, which is incredible. I want to look at three different words just for, to kind of, kind of get a concept for us, to kind of get a working knowledge of what we might be talking about today as we go through this and what maybe the implications are for all of us, all right? So I'm just going just gonna to talk about three of the 20 different words for sin in the Bible, just to kind of get an understanding, all right? So the first one is actually the word sin. The first one is the word sin, now, I, by the way, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, nor am I a Greek scholar, so I might get some of these words messed up. But remember, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, which is why we talk about those languages a lot. So there's the word for sin in the Hebrew is hata. I, it's something like that. You have, to have that guttural like in there. But I don't know how to do it. And it means to miss the mark. And the same word, the same meaning in the New Testament is called hamartia. Do we recognize that word? Homardiology, right? And so this version, this meaning of the word sin means to miss the mark. There's a standard, and we come up short, or we overshoot it, or we go left, or we go right. But that's the meaning of the word. It's used hundreds of times in the Bible. Sin. There's another word, you may have heard, you may not have heard. It's called iniquity. This is another word found for sin in the Bible. In Hebrew, it's called awan, and in, in Greek, it's anomia. And the idea is it's something that is bent or crooked. Something is just—it's—it's it's off. And we need to fix it and go and make it straight. That's the idea with this word iniquity as it's used in the scripture. And then third and final, and again, there are more than three, but I'm just going to highlight three, is this word transgression. Transgression is another word you'll see in the Bible used for sin. And transgression in Hebrew is pasha, And in Greek, it's peraptoma. I think that's how you say it. And it means, a couple kind of meanings here. It means to rebel. It also means a violation of trust. Okay? And it really, when you look at that word, it has more of a relational meaning than anything else. So it's like when we violate the trust of another person, or you know, or that person violates our trust of them. It's something personal, it's something relational. And that's the idea with that word. Are you with me so far? Are we doing okay so far? Trying to get a sense of what the Bible's talking about when we use this word and what it might mean. And so now I want to move to like, I wrote down five different ways. Um, that sin in its various forms. And I think you'll track with me here. All right? So when we talk about sin, I'm going to put them on the screen for you. Sin, first of all, can be this, this, um, this thing that we do, this positive, this, this forward thing that we actually do, something we commit. We call this the sin of commission. Right? We actually do something to commit a sin. Something we actively do. And, and and note this, this is important. We could do it on purpose or not. We could do it on purpose, or we might not even realize, but we're doing something. And we would call this, and theologians would call this the sin of commission. We're committing an act that's missing the mark. That's crooked. But there's also the sin of omission. Right, It's kind of the opposite. The sin of omission is when we don't do something that we should do. Right, And again, it carries this meaning. We could either do that intentionally or not. We avoid doing something intentionally or we don't do it and we're totally unaware but we should be doing that. That would be the sin of omission. It's kind of like that verse in James that says those who know to do good and don't do it, right? You guys remember that verse? That's sin. Let's keep going. Uh, sin can be an offense against God. He has set down some kind of moral law, maybe in this reverence to God, understanding who he is, and we could literally sin against God. But we can also sin against others. That's where some of that transgression comes in, right? That relational thing, that relational offense against someone else, or someone can do that to us, we can sin against others. In other words, there's consequences relationally in that kind of a behavior. And finally, we could even sin against ourselves. Do you realize that? We could sin against ourselves. And I think of things like, we know we're not supposed to eat three pounds of the sinfully delicious chocolate cake, right? And yet we get, into, we get into that. Or we know we might not do this because it would be harmful to our bodies or to our spirit in some way. We're sinning against ourselves when we give in to that. And so here, my only point with this is sin looks very differently It comes in a variety of forms. Things that we might not even realize that we do can be classified as sin. But whatever the form, whatever the transgression, whatever the error, whatever the screw-up, whatever the mistake, guess what? What it means is that we violated a standard. We've missed the mark. We've come up short. And so when I think about our world, and when I think about collectively what our world is, you know, here, here's the thing. I think a lot of times, and, and you might not think this, but I'm telling you, when I talk to people, this is what I hear. You know, basically, we're, people are good. We're basically, we're good. I was uh, reading an article when I was studying for this message. Uh, It was written by a CNN journalist a few years ago. His name is David Allen. And he literally asked this question: you know, he was asking the question, are people generally good or evil? And he wrote, and I quote, people generally start from a place of moral purity. But let me be clear: I don't think this is what the Bible teaches. At all. And we're going to get into that a little bit. This is not what Jesus talked about when he talked about sin. We are not basically good. In fact, the Bible says we are all born sinners. Some would call this inherited sin, right? Or some would call it original sin, maybe. And then again, there's debate about how you use those terms, or whatever. Not here. For now, we're not a bunch of theologians, don't need to know that. But yes, there's something inherited about our condition of sin. In other words, what I'm trying to say is our very nature, when we're born, is corrupt. But look at my cute little baby. How can it be messed up? It is. (laughs) but look at my cute little teenager. (laughs) That's different, yeah. The idea is we can't help it. We've inherited something right from the beginning. We are not basically good. Someone can be relatively good. We know those people. We admire those people. There is goodness in the heart of me. And by the way, this is part of the the good news here, but there is goodness in people. We can be relatively good, but it reminds me of this verse that said in James, he says, you could be nearly perfect. That's the translation. You could be nearly perfect, but if you're off in just one little centimeter, you're not without sin. So we're all born sinners, and then we rebel against God's standards. So God does have this standard that we're missing the mark. I'm going to show this verse. It's Romans 1.18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth. I want you to note that phrase. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, let me develop this just for a minute, because you might say, well, Tom, why are you teaching a message about this? And I think this verse starts for me why I feel burdened to teach it, it in this church, in this time, in this day and age. It's the burden I carry for myself. It's the burden I carry for you. It's the burden I carry for our world, because it's This idea that in general, collectively, in our world, I think we have moved to a dangerous place where we become and have become our own gods who kind of have set our own moral standard. And it concerns me. And the more pastors I talk to, this is the deep concern that we have because we have avoided a common moral standard of truth that God has given us, and we have become, in essence, our own little gods, making our own rules. So I want us to look at that phrase, suppress the truth. And I don't love the translation of that word, suppress. I want you to think of it a different, I want you to think of a different word. It's the word arrest. We've arrested the truth. We've taken something... And we've locked it away behind bars. And we don't want to hear from it. We want to put it aside. We've arrested it. That's really the literal translation of that verse. and that, So that verse captures this idea. We have tried to capture by force. Something that is inherently good, stay with me here, that is inherently good, God's standard, God's moral standard, his truth, and we want to lock it our way. And we've decided to put it out of sight so we don't have to be reminded of it. And so now this inherently good thing has no voice. That's what happens when we lock someone away. And I really feel like this is the dangerous thing for me about what a culture has done for us. Said another way, we arrest God, we lock him away, we replace him with ourselves, and before we know it, we think our way is right, which reminds me of another verse. There's a way that seems right to us, but the end thereof are the ways of what? Does anybody know that? Of death. One Bible scholar defined a sin like this Sin is living without reference to God. I like that. I was uh, on a walk the other day on vacation and. you know, I, I've been there several times, and we were walking around to a lake. I went with my daughter. It was about six miles of a walk. And there's just one part that I'm not exactly sure which street it was to get around the proper way. And so I took out my map, uh, my, my phone, with has the map on it, right? And so I pull up Google Maps or whatever it was, and it was, I could tell it wasn't oriented correctly. Right, And so there's that little button, it kind of looks like an arrow, it's a blue arrow on my phone, and you hit it, and the map kind of spins around so that you orient yourself in the right direction, right? It also reminds me of that Friends episode, for those of you who love Friends like I do, where Joey's in London, and he's kind of looking around in the map, and he can't figure out where he goes, so he lays the map out on the ground, and he steps on it, just so he could get his bearings. He was giving himself a reference point. But I'm afraid that when we lock God away and arrest the truth, we have lost our reference point. Jesus talks about this too. This is, what, this is different ways that he described it. He called it irreverence for God. He called it hypocrisy. He called it anxiety. Interesting one. Basically a lack of faith and trust in his provision. He called it irresponsible stewardship. Again, don't have the time nor the energy to go into all of that. But this is what Jesus taught. And so collectively we rebel against God's standards. And if you read the verses after Romans 118, that verse I just read where we arrest it, it goes into a lot more detail. Not going to read it. I encourage you to read it. But if you do, buckle up. Because there's a lot of things in there that are going to be said that are like, I'm not sure. So, read with caution. I want to move to what's personally going on in our hearts. I'm going to stay in Romans, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Before I say this, the sentiment is yeah, there's a lot of bad people in the world, but I'm pretty good comparatively speaking. Romans 2, 1 says, You may think you can contem- condemn those people, but you are just as bad. See, we sin against God, we sin against people, we exhibit crooked behavior, it's distorted, it's just, it's off, right? We don't even realize it. it's not straight. He goes on to say, Romans 2, I'm not sure I put this up here, because, because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself, And a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's going to judge everyone according to what they've done. And he will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he'll pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and instead live lives of wickedness. And there and again is is the problem. We're living lives for ourselves unto our own standard. And you say, Tom, I'm depressed. I think we should be. We are doomed. (laughs) We are doomed to the consequences of our sin. And you say, well, what are those consequences? I've listed a few. Again, you could go, you could have these discussions. Here's some that I, I would say. Number one, sin affects our destiny when we refuse to take the remedy there is a destiny for those who who live in that and that is separation from god and if there's ever a hell that's what i believe hell is it's separation from god it affects our destiny number 2 sin affects our agency this is kind of a buzzword, I think, these days. I'm not even sure it's a buzzword. It's a good word because we advocate for people to have agency in their life. Do you know what I'm saying? What I mean by agency is people have control of their decisions, their own decisions. They're able to exert a certain power over themselves and for themselves it's ownership of those decisions as well. It doesn't just happen to us. We control it. Do you understand? Like, so people are looking for agency in their life. And I think that that's a really good thing, particularly on a social justice side. But here's the thing. When we are sinners, we have this, um, this facade of control. But the truth is that sin takes away our agency. Because you know what the Bible says? It controls us. And so we actually lose our agency as sinners. Number three, sin affects our personal well-being. See, the thing about God's standard is, even though we don't understand it sometimes and it's confusing and we just downright don't like it, the truth is that he's all about human flourishing. And like I said a couple weeks ago, I've got to trust His heart on that. And so when we sin, it affects our own personal well-being. And finally, and you all know this because you've all been affected by it, sin, your sin, affects other people. It is not cloistered just to you in your own personal heart. Again, we're talking personally now, not just in the world. You, when you sin, when you miss that mark, when you kind of distort and you kind of look for your own way, you actually hurt other people in the process. It's not just about you. We are doomed. We're helpless. We can't get out of it on our own. And this is terrible, terrible news for humanity. But this is why I think we need to teach about sin. Because when we are able to see how desperate we are, then you begin to see and understand why it's so important to grasp the concept of homardiology, of the doctrine of sin. Because if we don't understand it, if we don't quite get the reality of it or ignore the reality of it, if we don't understand the origination of it, we will never be able to appreciate the fullness of the grace of God, which is the remedy for sin. I'm going to say that one more time. When we don't understand sin fully, we never fully appreciate the grace of God for us. Romans 1.17 says, The good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. I like that because you know what he's doing? I get the image of he's taking that crooked, distorting thing and he can make it right and true, and centered, and grounded. How? This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. And you say, well, what? Faith in what? What is the faith? Faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And I'm gonna say the word finished again. It's done once and for all. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short. We miss the mark. Of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in some translations say, but God. And I would say that's a big but. But God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our own sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. We're starting to see the good news. We're starting to see the remedy, right? Romans 5.1, Therefore, so then, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. This is not peace as we think of peace. This word is wholeness. We become whole in Jesus. Everything that was crooked and distorted and messed up becomes whole and good and fruitful with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. The crooked path is made straight. Jesus wants to make us whole. Final verse for today. Romans 5.20 says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, guess what? God's wonderful grace became more abundant. In other words, here's the good news. The more you sin, the deeper God's grace. The more you sin, the more God's grace... That's why we can appreciate the depth of it. That's the hope for us. There's forgiveness and mercy for sin. And that's what the Bible says. If we confess that, he is faithful and just to forgive us from our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think someone said it earlier. Maybe it was in the clip leading up to the message Carrie said a couple weeks ago. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. You do not have to look back on it anymore. That's one of the problems that we have with it because we think it's going to hold us down. It needs to hold us down and tie us down. No, that's not what Scripture teaches. Are there effects of our sin? Yeah. There are going to be things that come, but God says it's not going to hold you down. It does not have to hold you down. It is fully and freely forgiven. And so as I end, the reason why I wanted to talk about this message is because I think we've lost something in the standard that God has set for us. And it affects all of us and it does have implications. It has implications for our world and it has implica- implications for us personally. It has implications for those who say you're Christians and you follow God. And it also has implications for those who say, I'm not really sure, I am not there yet. It has implications for all of us. You see, our sin condemns us, but Jesus comes to uncondemn us, to pardon us, not just to erase our sin, but to erase, get this, the record of our sin. So I want to finish up today with just a quick story. I was talking to someone recently who would call themselves a Christian. Um, And then, you know, the, the phrase was, I'm not really sure if I can really believe anymore about sin. And here's the thing, I don't think she's alone. So Christians, I'm talking to you now. There are too many of us who've also gone our own way and set our own standard. And we need to check our, our hearts because we can't just make something what it's not. And that's the perspective that's concerning to me in our church today, in our world today. And on top of that, it breaks my heart because without realizing the depth of our sin, we can never truly appreciate the fullness of the grace of God. So we need to be careful. So let me be clear. God loves you. He is for you, not against you. He wants you to flourish. He wants our world to flourish. And yet we have to understand that we can't just arrest him, put him away and make our own standard. He wants to free us. And so I would ask that you all do that today. And I'm going to have us bow our heads and close our eyes. And just be in this moment. I want you to say to God whatever you need to say to God. And just listen what he's going to say to you whether that's today or in this moment or through this week or as you think about it, as you wrestle, as you question. But let me be clear, we all need a remedy. Maybe you need to ask God today to give you eyes on the blind spots that you have where you don't even know that this this sin, this missing the mark, this crooked path that you're on is kind of distorting the way you think or it's affecting people around you. And finally, I would say this. In this moment, I would be remiss not to put a call out to those of you who want to say to God, God, I believe what you did. I believe in the finished work on the cross. I trust in you. I don't want to be the God of my life anymore. I need something bigger than me, smarter than me, the one who created me. God, I, I trust you. I ask you to come into my life to change me from the inside out, to remove my sin as far as the east is from the west so that the record is no more. I really believe that's the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life, and it's the best decision you'll ever make in your life. You can use your own words. It does not have to be a certain way. It just needs to be this kind of turn in your heart towards God. God, thank you for this time. I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people. I love them. We want to love others well in our community around us. But God, I could speak for myself that for me, the change in my heart came with knowing you. And so I pray that we would make that a priority in our lives. Put people in our lives that can help encourage us and motivate us to teach us And God, may we be a church that is full of grace, full of grace, that never stops talking about your love for all people. In Jesus' name, amen.